Let me invite you to take your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 and verse 13. Romans 7 and verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do that what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, preserving your word, giving us your word that we would know the path to life in the person of your son who is life. Father, may we uh, learn from Paul. May we learn the realities of the Christian life. But may we not uh, be mired in our current uh, battle. May we look beyond and see the hope we have in the Lord Jesus. A hope that is not just for the future, but for the present and surely a freedom from our past. And so now, Lord, we ask that your spirit uh, would speak to every heart through uh, his word, that we would be a changed people, perhaps some unto salvation, that they would come to see that they are wretched people. And there's only hope is in the Lord Jesus. And Father, for your people that are weary in the, fly, in the fight, in the conflict, may they find hope also in the, the power of the Lord Jesus. And Lord, for those of your children that have laid aside the armor and lay slain on the spiritual battle, not in loss of salvation, but certainly uh, mired in defeat. May they also realize what the Christian life is, and may they get up on the battlefield and continue to fight the good fight. And so, Father, we just uh, commit our time to you, that uh, you would speak to us, that it would be through your word, by your spirit, that we're illuminated, and that application is made as he applies it to us individually. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I read that uh, lengthy portion towards the end of Romans chapter 7. This is our third stopover, or maybe fourth, in the the, uh, chapter 7 of Romans. Uh, By design, Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 is the substance of the Christian life. Is it in Romans 6, Romans 7, and Romans 8, we have the doctrine applied. We have the Christian life really defined. All that Paul would tell us, from Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 8, uh, this is what it is to be a Christian. And this is what it is to live the Christian life, living out the doctrine of justification in application. 
But as we come to this, uh, this portion of Romans 7, um, it brings a conclusion. Uh, it brings a conclusion because if, if Paul doesn't say this at the end of Romans 7, it's a most despairing place to be. Uh, it's a most discouraging place to be. Because in Romans 7, picking it up, you know, in verse 13, which we read, we don't find a whole lot of hope till we get to verse 25. We find confusion. We find that, Paul, what, what are you doing? You, you, hadn't, you, last, you, you need some sleep. You're not writing right. You're not making sense. Is he saying things like, I want to do this, but I don't do this. I don't want to do this, but I do this. And you almost want to just, just sit down with Paul and say, it's going to be all right, Paul. It really is. It's going to be all right. But, but we don't do that. You know why? Because we could put ourselves in front of a mirror and we could sit there with the Apostle Paul and we would say, I'm with you, brother. I'm with you. Because this is the Christian experience. He's not writing, which we identified. He's not writing uh, about the experience of a non-converted person. He's writing the everyday experience of a Christian. And if I'll say this to encourage you right out of the gate, because this is encouragement, is if you find this to be your experience... If you find this inward struggle, this inward conflict, this inward battle, this inward, I don't get myself, that is a very good sign. You say, well, how could that be a good sign? It means you're in the fight. It means you're in the battle. The non-Christian knows nothing about Romans 7. The non-Christian knows nothing about the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I, I do, I don't want to do. He knows nothing about being a wretched person. So it's only for the, for the Christians. So if this is you and you feel like you've just been battered and beaten and you can't get out of Romans 7, let me encourage you, never read Romans 7 without reading Romans 6 and 8. Because that is the, the, the trifecta, so to speak. It's Romans 6 reminds you what you are in Christ and it's not because you put yourself in Christ. It's because God puts you in Christ. And as a result, your positional um, uh, security in Christ in Romans 6 is it mean he's given you all you need to live above Romans 7. Not out of Romans 7, but above Romans 7. And then in Romans 8, you're going to find uh, the glorious truth of how the Spirit within you helps you to also live above Romans 7 by looking at the now, not yet. The state of glorification when Romans 7 will be, what? I don't know what that means. In heaven, they'll not, they'll not be in Romans 7. And so what does Paul do? Look at verse 24 and 25. That's our text for today. Paul brings his explanation of the mystery of the Christian life to a conclusion, and he does so with hope. With hope. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. There is so much to unpack in these two verses that it would probably take a month. But we're not because we need to get to Romans 8. But what I want to do, what I want to remind you of in verse 24 and 25 is that Paul is doing something that's extremely important to you as a Christian. I know when you're living in Romans 7 and you're beating yourself to pieces because you don't understand yourself and you find yourself just repeatedly falling to the same sin over and over or you find yourself, I don't understand this. I want Christ. I don't, I don't want Christ. I want to have a good prayer life. I don't have a good prayer life. All this, this confusion that happens in the soul, it's easy to just concentrate and just look in yourself. 
And the more that you look inwardly in the Christian life, the more that you're going to deepen your, your, your woes. The more that you're going to deepen your misery. We are supposed not, we're not supposed to look in. We're not supposed to look out. We're just supposed to look up. And Paul would do this in verse 25. I'm so grateful for Romans 7. And I'm so grateful that he left us on the high mountain of verse 25. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for what he's done in Christ Jesus. And what Paul really does is that he takes us in the depths of the Christian experience. And he, gets, he points us to Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And when you look unto Jesus, do you know what you find? You find the, um, you find the first breakwater of Romans 6 which will protect you from the, from the crashing waves of Romans 7. And then when, he, when you look unto Jesus, you'll find yourself in Romans chapter 8, which is the second breakwater or the break wall that keeps the crashing waves of Romans chapter 7 drowning you. And so in a very real way, Paul is ensuring that as we move out of the experience of Romans 7, we tag along Romans 6, and then he introduces Romans 8. And Romans 8 will be the battle of transfiguration for us is that we will be in, in, the, in, the, in the clouds of really the heightened of Christian experience. We will spend multiple weeks looking at the spirit of adoption and what that means as a child of God and how encouraging that is. And then we'll look at the great chain, or the golden chain of salvation that takes us from justification all the way to glorification. And uh, I'm talking about Romans 8, and we're not even there. And so, but what we want to look at then for our encouragement is how Romans 7 ends. How it ends. And I've titled it The Desperate Believer in Conflict. And the word desperate is by, by design because we can read in Romans 7 and we can look into Paul's heart and we can see apart from verse 25, he's a desperate person. He is desperate and he is hopeless. But yet, he doesn't leave us there. So let's take a look then in verse 24. The first thing is the desperate believer in conflict. And by the way, if you're a believer today, you are a desperate believer. You are constantly desperate. You're not despairing, but you're a desperate believer because you have zero resources in yourself to get you out of Romans 7. In fact, you have zero resources to live any moment of the Christian experience. And that is the purpose of this. It's to drive us out of ourselves so that we will be driven to him who is the Christian life. And so Paul would say this in verse 24. He would define what the desperate believer is. He would say, O wretched man, or O wretched woman. This is the correct conclusion of the Romans 7 believer. Because what you see in Romans 7, you see the Christian who longs to please God. He longs, or she longs to obey the law that he or she delights in. She longs, he longs not to succumb to the law of sin that, that exploits the flesh so that he would fulfill the desire, her desire of pleasing God. This is a person in Romans 7 who says, I just want to love you purely. I just want to love you sincerely. I want to worship you perfectly. This is not the, the believer who says, you know, well, uh, God forgives. I'll just run to 1 John 1, 9 and just enjoy my life. That's not the believer. The believer is the one that says, I want to do these things, and yet I feel this oppressive power within me that won't let me do this. And every one of you have probably had, if you're true Christians, you've had those nights where you just literally cried 
that you wanted so much to be what God wants you to do, but you know that there's something inside of you that you hate, but yet it holds you back. And that's Romans 7. And Paul would say, you know what we are? We are wretched people. Wretched. Go out on the street and call somebody wretched and see what happens to you. <laughs> or go to most churches today and I guarantee you, you're not going to hear that word. You're not going to hear, you know, we're generally good people. You're not going to hear that. You're not going to hear, oh, wretched person that I am. And what does Paul say about this person, himself and us? The word wretched doesn't mean just a little broke. It means to be pathetically poorest of quality. Now, go out there and say, look at someone and say, you know what? God says you are pathetic. (laughs) But Paul says this is what we are. We are pathetic. We are pathetic people. He says the word means pathetic, poorest of quality, and miserable. It only appears one other time in the New Testament. In the church of the Laodicea, in the Revelation, where Paul, where I'm sorry, sorry, John would say, for you say, it was really the Lord saying, the Lord says, you say you're rich, you're prosperous, you need nothing. Is that not much of what we hear and see in the, in the putrid state of the evangelical church today? That they brag about what they're doing, they brag about you know, how, how well the ministries are gone. Uh, you rarely hear the thundering voice of thus saith the Lord under the holiness of God, or the wrath of God, or the judgment of God, or the call to repentance. We don't hear that. And I know I'm being harsh on the, on the church at large, but the reason why America is in such a state she's in today, it's largely because of the failure of the church. We have not been salt and light. We've not stood tall as a beacon of hope. If anything, we've been religious isolationists. Is we pulled ourselves away to the point is everything is in our nice little cocoons of Christian everything. And the world goes to hell around us and we lament because the government's corrupt. And so it's important we understand that this wretched state... This wretched state has to, be, has to be recovered by us as Christians because we need to see what they are out there so that we will have a passion for the gospel to get them to where that's the only thing that will heal them. The revelation says, Jesus says of this church, you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. And he says, you don't even realize it. He don't even realize it. I wonder sometimes, and I've wondered sometimes for us too, that we come to Sunday worship and we're here and we leave and I wonder if God ever met us. I wonder if he was here. We sing the right songs. We certainly sing. We got, we got great safeguards in our singing. It's theologically correct. You know, and hopefully we're preaching the word uh, in a way that honors the Lord. But I often wondered, have we met the living God? Has he showed up? In our presence. And I'm not talking about making you feel good. I'm talking about him showing up and showing himself as he really is. Which overwhelms us with a sense of his beauty. And the sense of his fear. And the sense of his holiness. And the sense of us being wretched. Because you want to know something? If you don't know you're wretched. If you don't know how pitiful we are. Then we will not glory on the magnificence of the gospel. You got to know how bad we are. Before we know how good he is. And so Paul does this. He said, I'm a wretched person. I'm pitiful. And, and he goes, and, and that's because I don't understand myself. 
That's because I'm, this law of sin is still within me. But then he would say, but I'm not going to stay there because of verse 25 in the glorious gospel. John Newton's um, greatest hymn probably, Amazing Grace, what does the first line read? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a pretty good fellow like me. I once was a little wayward, but now I have found the way. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, not just a little bit off the path. I was lost, but now am found. And it isn't you found Jesus at all. He tracked you down. And all you did is in the power of sovereign grace, you surrendered to him. And so that's the essence of salvation. Not that I chose Jesus or I made a decision for Jesus. Now there's, there's a place for that. But once you understand that it wasn't you that sought him, he sought you and he overpowered you with sovereign grace and love and enabled you to believe upon him, that's the glory of the gospel. But is that what we get in the climate of contemporary Christianity? Particularly of preaching across the land, oh wretched people. R.C. Sproul said this, quote, In today's church, we've become so narcissistic, so preoccupied with self-esteem and self-worth, that preachers must be careful not to ever engender feelings of guilt or worthlessness in people. End quote. As I said, without a wretched people we are, there would be no how glorious is the gospel. So that's what Paul says. This is what the Christian is. And don't think that that's a morbid sense, you know, because it isn't. It's, it's the right assessment of what we are. It's the right, right assessment that outside of Christ, we are wretched to the core. But in Christ, we still battle wretchedness. Because we still have the law of sin that's in there just absolutely just raking havoc every day into our minds, into our hearts, into our affections. Where the healthy Christian, get this, the healthy Christian cries out, oh, I don't even know myself. I don't even know myself. But what about the desperate believer's condition? Also in verse 24, look what he says. First he defines our identity, we're wretched. We're wicked, wickedly wretched. We're pitiful. He says, who will set me free from the body of this death? Who shall set me free from the body of this death? It's a graphic picture of bondage. Now, it's not bondage that we read that the Christian is under the complete power of, of sin. We're not. Romans 6 already told us that sin will not have dominion. Or overarching ruling power in your life. It does not say. It does not say that we would be immune to the attacks of the remaining sin within us. And when Paul says here. Who shall set me free from the body of this death. He's talking about the inward battle that still fights within him. That has caused him to say I don't want to do these things. But I want you to know here. This is not a cry of hopeless despair. It is a cry of desperation. It is a cry of helplessness. And friend, every day as a Christian, you should get up and I should get up with this awareness of our complete helplessness to do anything of good in the Christian life. As a husband, as a father, as a mother, 
as a wife, as a witness in the workplace, as an encouraging brother or sister, you are absolute and I am absolute powerless to do anything. Total. And who shall set me free from the very thing that keeps me from that? Paul would say in verse 25. But I want to I just uh, focus on this just for a minute, our condition. Who shall set me free? You have to be convinced. You have to be convinced that not only do you have to come to Christ to be a Christian, but you have to keep coming to Christ to live the Christian life. Is, I'm fearful of my own life sometimes. I come to Christ for salvation, a, de- a, a desperate, hell-bound sinner, and, and I reach up to grab a hold of him in salvation. But it seems as time goes on, you fall into this Christian routine, and more often than not, uh, the call to obedience is morphed to just living a moral life. It's just living a bunch of do's and don'ts in the Christian experience, and that's what, what Paul is saying. Paul is saying this inward thing within me is is going against the commands of God. There are good, you you probably have neighbors that are good neighbors. I grew up in a a small town that was was populated with God-fearing people that were not Christians. And if, if our house burned down, they'd be there tomorrow and they'd build it up again. That was my, that was the town of Mayberry. That's what I grew up in. People that would give you everything is loved, loved, loved it in a human sense, but they would tell you they're not Christians. That's not Christianity. Christianity knows that you are wretched, knows that Paul says that even as a Christian, I fight this thing, and a Christian knows that there is no power within themselves, not only to make them Christians, but also to live the Christian life. Have you arrived at that point? Do you wake up every day with a sense of dependency upon God? Do you understand that unless he empowers you every day, you won't live for him? You will surrender to the law of sin. And you won't live to the law of God, which he says at verse 25. If you really want to get to to the, the core issue of what faith is, you know what faith really is? Certainly it includes knowledge. Uh, you have to have knowledge of Jesus and who you are. And there has to be not only the assent that is true, but you also have to uh, uh, cast yourself upon that truth. So faith consists of three things. Knowledge, assent that the knowledge is true, and then the total abandonment to the truth. The total abandonment means if he doesn't save me, I will not be saved. And it's a total abandonment every day that if you don't know you're wretched and you can't live the Christian life one second of it without him, then you don't understand faith. The faith life is the abandoned life. It's the abandoned life to his promises and abandoned life to a life of obedience. Faith is like, I should say, who just set me free from the body of this death. The faith that, that answers that question is a faith that throws him or herself upon Christ, knowing that if he is not your lifeguard and save you, you will drown. I remember growing up as a teenager, we lived probably maybe 200 yards from the Ohio River. And uh, I, my bedroom, I'd wake up and I could see the Ohio River, see the barge traffic, watch the thunderstorms roll up there. It was, it, was, I, it was nice. And we were told, we were told that you're never allowed to go to the river and swim. Now, when a teenager, an unconverted teenager, has a bunch of unconverted teenagers, when they said, you're not allowed to go there, never go swimming in the river, what do you think we did? Yeah, we went swimming in the river. And I remember being down there one day, and, um, and 
we were swimming uh, near shore, and I got a little further out than I should have. I remember to this day, and I got caught in a strong eddy. And I started getting scared. I couldn't swim against it. I went underwater once. I come back up, and, and I, I was scared. I, I, I was drowning. I was going to drown. My friend, and every time I go back to this day, every time I see that, that, that man, Jeff, he was younger than me. Every time I see him, I'm just thankful for God's providence. Is Jeff was a powerful and a great swimmer. And he was over there on the shore side, and he saw me. I was probably from here to the, uh, the coat room. And he saw me out there, and he knew that I was in trouble. And he dived in there, and he swam out there, and he grabbed me. And he dragged me out of that eddy, and he drug me into where I could get back. And I was, I was so scared. But you want to know, when he got me in there where I was safe, I was so thankful. Friends, and when he, when he grabbed a hold of me, I wasn't fighting nothing. He was my only hope. If my friend doesn't drag me out of that, I'm not going to be here. That's how we are as Christians. Every day you are faced with tsunamis of temptations. Every day the floodwaters of trials are going to come upon you. And not only do you have to, as a wretched person, cling on Christ for salvation, but you have to cling on Christ to be free from the bondage that wants to seek you under the law of sin. Every day. Because if you won't lose your salvation, you know, but you will lose your joy and you will live in a state of defeatedness that is absolutely not attractive to anybody. I think a wonderful illustration of this desperate believer's condition, who shall set me free from the body of this death, not only myself uh, in, in, as a teenager, but what about that woman with the blood issue in the Gospels? That's a wonderful illustration of what faith looks like. You know her story. She had this blood issue for 12 years. She couldn't be healed. She went to all the doctors she possibly could, spent all of her money, and she was totally, totally done. She knew that there was no hope whatsoever. And she, gets, she fights through the crowds, and this is what she says to herself. If I just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. You know what that person is? That's a wretched person. That's a wretched person who knows her condition, who shall set me free from this body. I've tried everything else. And friends, if you're not a Christian today and you're trying to find purpose, contentment, satisfaction in human relationships, human achievements, vocational achievements, then you are on a fool's journey. Is that you will never, ever find contentment that will last and satisfy your soul apart from knowing you're a wretched person and grabbing the hem of his garment. And when you grab the hem of his garment, what did this woman experience? She experienced the power of Christ. And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. We could even add, and this wouldn't be leavening, daughter, your believing faith as evident by your abandonment to me has made you well. And so Christian, we have to understand is that in verse 24, that is us. That is the Christian. It's the person who knows that they are wretched. They entered into the Christian life as a wretched person, and they lived the Christian life as a wretched person. And that is not in contradiction to you being a child of God. God, in his wisdom, has left this conflict for us. I've said a few times, Lord, why didn't I just get saved on that ship and then just take me to heaven? I wouldn't have all this the junk and struggles that I've had as a Christian, you know, ever since. 
I said, it's just too hard. Why didn't you just take me? And the reason why is because he wants us to slug it out together as his church. So it gives the world out there the reality of who Christ is through us. And there's nothing more powerful than to tell someone that's drowning in the circumstances of life, there's hope because I was where you are. And let me tell you about the one who said, if you touch the hem of his garment, you will be made well. That's why we're here. That's our purpose. And it's so short-sighted to live in the world of me, my, and mine, and we never look around and see the wretchedness all around us. You know what that means? We forgot that we were wretched. And that because God has shown mercy on us who are wretched, we have the responsibility and privilege to be burdened to where we cry out at night to all of our wretched people around us and our families, our neighborhoods, our communities. Lord, help me to be a wretched sinner saved by, uh, by grace that will go to other wretched sinners who need to be saved by grace. And so Paul gives us the wonderful, it may sound a little morbid, but he gives us the wonderful definition of the Christian living the Christian life. We are wretched, we are pitiful, we are poor in spirit. Actually, Romans 7 is a good illustration of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, what does poor mean? doesn't mean I got a little bit. No, it means you got nothing. It means you got nothing. It means you're totally bankrupt. Blessed are they that mourn. Well, Paul's mourning. So this, if you're in Romans 7, I hope you are. And I'm not wishing that you would be in a, in a, in a conflict. But I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping that you are struggling. I really hope that you are just fighting and you're like, oh, I'm hoping that's like you because welcome. That's the Christian life. And if you today, if your struggle is only in the circumstances of your life, if your struggle is only through what's happening and an outward forces upon you, and you know nothing of this inward struggle, then you need to question the foundations. You need to question, have I come to Christ as a wretched person? Have I thrown myself at his feet like the woman and say, I am undone. I have no hope. My sins have caused me to be a wretched person. I am dead in trespasses and sins. Please make me alive because if you don't, I'm going to drown. And so if that's you today, you can leave this place in the fight. You can leave this place in the great conflict. And you can join the rest of us desperate believers who know all about this conflict. But we don't want to stay in verse 24 because that would be pretty discouraging. Um, but I want us to be reminded that this side of heaven, you will always be a wretched per- person. You will be a wretched person outside of Christ. To God, God's wrath is upon you. But when you're in Christ, you'll be a wretched person, but you'll have the resources of Christ for you. And that makes all the difference. In your wretchedness, he'll come to you. And he'll come to you and he'll let you touch the garment the hem of his garment. Let's take a look at verse 25 now, and let's look at the, um, let's begin to climb up a Mount Transfiguration, because this is where it starts. Because verse 25 is an introduction to, uh, to uh, Romans chapter 8. In fact, the therefore of Romans 8, it pushes us back. But it also provides us the bridge to the riches that we find in Romans chapter 8. And Paul would say this in verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, if he just stopped at thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, um, that would just be one of those things that you could actually uh, just go through the motions. But he says that, and then he says, oh, I haven't forgot the conflict. Yeah, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, and we'll look at that. But 
I haven't forgotten the conflict. You must always remember that this side of heaven is warfare. It's constant warfare. And that your, your periods of cessation of, of, of hostilities is only for a very short period of time, if not minutes. I mean, you will not have a carefree, easy Christian life. You will be in, in conflict every day. And it won't largely be, for us right now, conflict from without. It's conflict from within. But let's take a look at this. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So now we're going to see the deliverance. Because with what's inferred in the statement, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, is victory. He's taking us out of that dark pit of Romans 7, and he's putting us to, to, to the position of concentrating on what God has done through Christ. He's already, he's already explained the gospel in chapter 6. He's already went through them, and now he's really making the summary. Let's give thanks for 6 and 7, because it sets the stage that we can enjoy deliverance in the now, with the hope of deliverance in the not yet. This dark cave of Romans 7 is not without light. He says, the law of God. He says, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So what he's identifying is there are two possible, um, since we're talking about a battle, there are two possible commander-in-chiefs. There is the law of God, which is the commander-in-chief of the believer. And then there's the law of sin, which is the commander-in-chief of the unbeliever. However, for the Christian, there's only one commander-in-chief that has taken the law of sin and that commander and defeated him. And that is by position. That is by position, which your conduct will never change your position. That's why Romans 6 is so important. Because you've got to always remember who you are in Christ, not what you do as a Christian. Because if you start with what you do as a Christian, you're going to forget who you are in Christ, and you're going to fall your, find yourself in much misery. Because every day you fall, every day you fall short, every day you don't measure up. And if you begin to measure your Christian experience and your Christian life or what you do and what you don't do or better, better yet, what you do as a Christian, then you're going to find yourself absolutely discouraged. Because you don't live up. Why? Because you're wretched. You're wretched. And the law of sin looks at your wretchedness and begins to try to exploit that. But this doesn't mean that we live... Uh, in, the, in, the, um, in, in the defeat of the law of sin. This is a statement in verse 25 of deliverance. It's a statement of being set free. He answers the question when he says in verse 24, Who shall set me free? He says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. He is saying it's the gospel. It's the gospel that answers the question. And friends, that's the only answer to the misery of human society. It is the gospel. There's nothing else. There's no religion. There's no good works. It's just the gospel. And I don't say just making it light. It's a big G gospel. It is the only thing that enables you to live above these experiences of life. And so when he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, this is a cry of victory. It is similar to the cry of 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 53 and through 58. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost the exact same words as Romans 7. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to look at three dimensions of this deliverance. 
There's three dimensions of this deliverance that the believer enjoys. And again, if you're not a believer, run to Christ today and he becomes your deliverer in all three of these dimensions. But the first thing that we see then, that the gospel, it not only changes us positionally from wretched, wrath-deserving people and places in Christ, it now, because we're in Christ, we have the power to overcome the wretchedness, to, to live in victory over the wretchedness, to defeat the law of sin that is competing within me with the law of God. Because we as Christians, we want the law of God to rule, but we know the law of sin can get in there and it can cause havoc in our Christian life. So we got to understand what has occurred. When Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, or the Corinthian passage, but thanks be to God who gives us a victory, we need to learn how to walk in what Christ has accomplished. We need to learn how to walk in this deliverance that he has given to us. And the first thing is that the deliverance that comes, or the freedom that comes, 24 to 25, of the gospel, it is deliverance from sin's penalty. We go all the way back to the, to the most important transition uh, that occurs in the Bible, in my estimate, is Romans 3.21. Where Paul, from Romans 1.18 all the way through 3.21, he has brought condemnation upon everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. No one is, no one is free. But in verse 21 of chapter 3, he says, but now, but now the righteousness of God. And that's where it transitions over to where we read in Romans 3, 21 through 25 that God has put Christ to, to forward on the cross as a propitiation, as a substitute, whereas His atonement and only His atonement can make right us with God, reconciliation. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So we look to, we look to the Lord Jesus and we thank God for Jesus because sin's penalty is paid. And friends, you don't have to be mired and don't listen to the devil and listen to your conscience. You don't have to be mired in the consequences of your past sin. If you're trusting Christ, past, present, future sin is dealt with. Period. You say, well, you don't know what I've done. Well, you don't know what I've done. And, and, and you know what? God knows what we've done. And you know what God says? Forgiven. Placed on my son. And how many times? Once. We don't crucify Christ again every week. We don't put him up there as a sacrifice every week. He, came, he went to the cross once. He came down from the cross once. And he rose from the dead once. It's enough. And so if you are... If you are being harassed about your past sins, you need to run to the cross and you need to sit there and you need to look up at the bleeding Savior and you need to stay there until God showers you with the tremendous mercy of His forgiveness and knowing that when Jesus died once for your sins, all sins, the Father says, it is finished. The Son says, it is finished. The Trinity would say, it is finished once and for all. So what we have then is this deliverance. When Paul sees in Romans 7, Paul's not struggling with his past sins. Paul says, forgetting the things that are past, I, I march on. Do you think if anyone would have had been ripe for the devil to, uh, to rake across the coals his past sins? How about this? You murdered Christians. You put women and children in prison. You thought you were serving God and you were really serving the devil. Stephen, who was a shining testimony, you sanctioned his death. Do you think anyone would have had, had the harassment of, of the evil one about his past? 
it was the Apostle Paul. Murderer, blasphemer. And yet Paul says, I forget the things that are past. And you have to too. If you're in Christ, you have to forget your past. You say, well, it's very hard. Well, it, it, it is hard. But when you, Spurgeon once said, when you look back to your past, look at it under, through the lens of one word, forgiven. If you can do that and live that, then what you're doing is you are a wretched person rejoicing in that God has taken your wretchedness positionally and placed it on Christ. That's the first deliverance we see in Romans 3. He has made a propitiation so you, you and I can live in Romans 7, but with Romans 27, 25, and say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who gives me the victory. Yes, I struggle. Yes, I fall. But I want to say something about this law of sin. Well, now, we'll get there in a minute. Let's move on here. Now, what, is the, uh, this, what should that do for us by way of application? This deliverance from sin's penalty. Thanks be to God. Well, the first thing it is, and which I think uh, every new Christian needs to understand, and every maturing Christian, every mature Christian needs to remember, that when you were saved, and the your penalty of your sins was washed away and atoned for by the Lord Jesus, you need to understand that He bought you. You are no longer yourself. You belong to him. He paid the price for you. He paid the price of, his pen, uh, of your sin, but he pay, paid the price for you. Where Paul would say, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I have found out that way too many Christians are struggling in the Christian life because they don't realize that they are not their own. You gave it all up. You, you gave up. Your life that was in the bondage of, this, uh, of the prince of darkness in the kingdom of darkness to be under the king of kings and the lord of lords in the, in the kingdom of light. And I'll tell you, we got the best end of the deal here. Yes. But Christians struggle because you know what they try to do? They try to wear Christ's yoke and their yoke. And Jesus says, come take my yoke. But if you, start, if you try to wear two yokes, that animal is not going to get a whole lot of stuff done in the, far, in, in the garden, right? Not. He's going to be all over the place. And, and the thing is, though, is when you tug against the yoke of Christ, that's, that's a tug of war you'll never win. Is that you will eventually wear down if you're his child because you're just going to have to say, this isn't working. I'm not only wretched, wretched. I am wretched, wretched, wretched because I'm, I'm warring against the master. So the first thing you then, this deliverance that Paul would, he says it throughout, is understand that you have been delivered from the penalty. Thanks be to God that I'm set free, verse 24, because of the gospel that has paid the penalty of my sins. I'm no longer under the mastery of the devil. I'm now the mastery under Christ. But understand, that is a daily surrender. Your greatest battle as a Christian, every day is this inward conflict, and it's a battle for your heart. It's a battle for your affections. It's a battle the flesh wants you to fulfill fleshly affections. And it's the battle of the spirit that wants uh, you to fulfill godly, godly affections. And so every day your battle, your battle, Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence for it as the issues of life. Is it your battle every day is not uh, what am I going to do, what I'm not going to do. Your battle is for your affections. Because what captures your heart will guide your life. What captures your heart will guide your life. And if it's the Lord Jesus capturing your heart, then you're going to run the race. And you're going to fight the fight. And you're going to finish well. But if you're trying to have Jesus uh, and your will, then that's a, that's a conflict that you're never going to win. And, uh, and you're going to be pretty miserable. And it'll show in your face. It'll show in your face. 
A joyful uh, heart produces a joyful countenance. All right, let's take a look at the second thing here. This, is, this deliverance that Paul would offer to us. Thanks be to God. Coming out of Romans 7, uh, we are not only to enjoy the deliverance from sin's penalty, but we are also to enjoy and appropriate deliverance from sin's power. Sin's power. What did Romans 6 tell us? Remember I told you, never read Romans 7 without Romans 6. Romans 8. What does Romans 6 tell us? Verse 11. So you must also consider, or some of the older translations say reckon. It's a term of accounting. It's not a term of experience. It's a term of accounting that you weigh in what has happened. He says you also must count, account or reckon or consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is an exercise of the mind. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Let not sin reign. Only the Christian can say that. So you can't say, well, I just keep falling to the same thing. I would first look at you and say, well, are you running to it? Or are you falling to it? There's a difference. Are you feeding temptation? Or are you starving temptation? If you're feeding it, then it's no wonder you're miserable. And God is not going to put a hedge about you. Uh, in fact, he will... Give you a little leash on the prodigal if you want to. But I guarantee you it's never fun. And, and the road back is hard. And yet we find here that Paul would say, but don't let these things reign, for sin will not have dominion over you. So what's the second application? If we know this deliverance by Christ, in Romans 7, if we know what we're set free, first, we're owned by Him. Secondly, we become a slave of His. That's Romans 6. And the slave of Christ is the person who is understanding more and more the love of Christ and what it means to be under the control of the love of Christ. Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all so that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. How do you know if you're living for his, himself? How do you know if you're living for Christ? How do you know if you're under the, the control of God's love, Christ's love? How would you know that? Here's one, here's one way, and the primary way. You will live putting the interests of others ahead of your own. Is that not what Jesus did? From the day he left heaven to the day he went back, did he not live for the interests of others? Did he not take much abuse for the interests of others? Did he not feel the, uh, the sting of betrayal by his own disciples? Because he put the interests of others. Did he not know and let Peter fall because it was for his good? And did it not hurt? Yes, it did. You can easily ask the questions. Do I know the love of Christ in my heart? And am I under the control of Christ's love or constrained of Christ's love? And the answer would simply be, he says that you would live for him who died and raised. If you're going to live for Christ, then that means that you are living for the interests of others. I'm not saying abandon your life, but don't be consumed with your life. You are to live for others. Paul would tell Timothy, he would tell in the Philippians letter, uh, look, now, look at not your own interests, but the interests of others. So don't abandon your responsibilities for uh, your life. But let's make sure it's, so far, uh, it's not so far out of balance that we forget the, the needs of others and the interests of others. Because that's what deliverance does. Delivers, delivers, this deliverance of the gospel, it delivers us from the penalty of sin, but it also delivers us from the power of sin. And the power of sin in us, you know what it really is? It is the, it is the consuming power of selfishness. Paul David Tripp, he said in, his, in the marriage book, that we've been using for uh, premarital counseling. It's a good book. I highly recommend you read it uh, for couples and for those who are looking to get married. It's very solid. Uh, Paul said this. 
He says the DNA of sin is selfishness. Think about it. When Christian, when a person becomes a Christian, they're wretched, but they live selflessly. Outside of Christ, you're wretched and you live selfishly. Here's a third one. Here's the third deliverance. Not only is there the deliverance from sin's power, which makes us own by Christ. Here's the deliverance of, of uh, sin's, um, sin, well, sin's penalty, which is owned by Christ. Sin's power, uh, which has become a slave of Christ. But there's also the promise of sin's presence being gone. That is the now, not yet. And that takes us into Romans chapter 8, which is the now, not yet. And Paul would say sin's presence will be gone that in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, he says, Them whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. There's a neat little book that I'll refer to a few times. Derek Thomas wrote a book. Uh, it actually was uh, his sermon's exp- uh, exposition of Romans chapter 8. He would argue that it's the greatest chapter in the, uh, uh, in the Bible. The title of his book is, How the Gospel Brings Us All the Way Home. It's a, pretty, it's a pretty good uh, read. But the point I want to get with here is you've got you to look beyond the now. Because if you stay in the now, Romans 7 will overwhelm you. And you can't look to the past only through forgiveness. You must look into the now with an eye to the presence when Jesus will come back or we go and be with him. That's what makes Romans 7 um, so not a, a paralyzing experience for the Christian because we look, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. What is the blessed hope? The blessed hope is being free. And then finally, look at the end of verse 25 and uh, what is make, make notice of this. Not only do we find that uh, Paul would offer to us the, the definition of the Christian in the conflict. We're, we're, we're miserable, we're wretched, and that we uh, have no way of getting loose out of this only through the gospel. And the gospel will deliver us from sin's penalty, it will deliver us from sin's power, and it will deliver us from sin's presence. But it also produces within us perseverance. Perseverance. Romans 7.25 says, So that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He's not resigning in the conflict, he's reminding himself of the conflict. And this is important. You need to understand that every day of your life is one of war. Every day of your life, you are going to fight the battle between the law of God and the law of sin in your heart. Friends, that's why you have to have Christian friends. Not Christians associates that you see for an hour and a half on a Sunday. Christian friends who are in the fight with you. Who are slugging it out with you who come alongside of you like Epaphroditus did Paul. He says, you are my brother. You're my fellow soldier. You're my laborer. Or you're that person in Ecclesiastes 4 where Solomon says two are better than one so that when one one, one, one falls, the other will pick him up. You need to have those relationships. If you're trying to run this race and fight this fight by yourself, you are already slain on on the battlefield and you don't even know it. And so Paul would say that I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've, I've kept the faith. And he could say that because the conflict was just about to be over. He was going to a martyr's death. And all of us, we're in a conflict if you're a Christian. And I hope that you have comrades in arms. I hope that you have fellow soldiers that are fighting with you. You know, one of the things that uh, <clears throat> it, it probably would not be right to not have some Navy uh, reference um, you know one thing I miss about the Navy? I, I was talking to 
Joy, and I think I mentioned to Glenn, I wonder if I could get an age waiver and go back. And I think they need me, um, so probably not. Probably not. But you know what I miss about that? You know what I miss about shipboard life and deploying? Uh, I don't miss the family time of separation. You know what I miss? The camaraderie. I miss the, the closeness. I miss the camaraderie of, of guys that I served with, that we all were doing a hard thing together. And I, I've, got, I've got non-Christian friends in the Navy that and knew I was a Christian and had numerous counts of uh, conversation with them. I have non-Christian friends right now that, you know, if, if, if I called them at 1 o'clock and I need them, they'd be here by sunset. And they're not even Christians. And so do you have in the family of God, do you have those type of relationships that you could call out on some way and they'd be there before 1 o'clock? They'd be there for you. Because that, that defines the Christian life. The conflict that's fought not in isolation, but it's fought in community. And that will bring us into Romans chapter 8 and living high upon the mount, looking at the glorious riches that we have as being a child of God and the future that holds for us the glorification. Father, thank you so much for the reality of the Christian life. Thank you for uh, the conflict of Romans 7. But also thank you that there's hope. Thank you that Paul does not leave us in the pit. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the power. And Lord, if there's people here that, that know that they're wretched but they never come to Christ, please show them that uh, there is a Savior. Grant them repentance. Grant them saving faith. Let them embrace Christ. Let them touch the hem of His garment today. And Don't let pride, don't let the fear of peer pressure or even family hold them back. Let them run to Christ. Father, for us who are fighting the fight, let us not grow weary. This is what you've ordained for the Christian. There's never going to be a time otherwise. May it deepen our desire for heaven. And may it also deepen our desire to help one another in the conflict. That in turn, we can serve those who are yet to get into the family. That they might come to enter the fight with us. Help us to think on these things even as we partake of the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen.